Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's my uh, great pleasure on behalf of the International History Department to welcome tonight's speaker, Lawrence Rees, uh, to the LSE. Uh, Lawrence is the writer and producer of the major BBC PBS television series, which I hope you all saw and enjoyed as much as I did, uh, World War II, Behind Closed Doors, uh, the subject he'll be talking about tonight. If you did see the series, if you didn't see the series, I recommend you can all buy the book. Uh, there it is, sick, wonderful, informative, uh, and you'll want to buy even more so, I think, after hearing the lecture. Uh, he's also produced other acclaimed television series, such as The Nazis, uh, A Warning from History. He's written books like The War of the Century, Horror in the East, and especially Auschwitz, The Nazis, and The Final Solution. For this impressive body of work, he's won many awards, including a BAFTA and a Grierson Award. Uh, in 2006, his book on Auschwitz won the History Book of the Year Award. Uh, and in 2007, he published uh, Their Darkest Hour, uh, his collection of interviews with people tested to the extreme uh, during the Second World War. Uh, and that was published to high critical acclaim as usual. Uh, Lawrence Rees is creative director of BBC TV history programs. Well, the world of television history is a, an extremely fascinating one. Uh, programs by people like David Starkey, Simon Sham, and others, of course, reach audiences much wider than those uh, when people like myself give lectures. Uh, sometimes we think they may lack depth, but on the whole, that's made up for by the immediate, immediacy. Uh, Lawrence Reese, as far as I know, has chosen up till now not to appear in front of the cameras himself, but the techniques he uses have been riveting. The people, for example, he found to interview in his series on the Nazis or warning from history were all extremely fascinating, sometimes chillingly so. For example, I remember particularly the German Hausfrau uh, who had uh, reported a lesbian neighbour of hers to the Gestapo before the war, and that woman had been sent to Auschwitz, and when she was interviewed on the programme, she couldn't really understand what all the fuss had been about. Uh, there were also the many insights into Hitler given by his valet who appeared in that series. The recent series, uh, Behind Closed Doors, employed actors uh, as well as uh, people being interviewed. Uh, and I, for one, was particularly struck by the man who played Stalin. Uh, the Churchill figure seemed to be to hammer up a bit too much. And FDR, by 1945, looked far too healthy uh, for a man who was about to die. Uh, that said, the real value of this series was the original manner in which it followed the evolution of Stalin's policy, never overlooking the horror of it all or the price paid by so many millions of individuals. The television audience must have been a great deal wiser by the time the series ended. But enough for me uh, to discuss how this wonderful series was made and to reflect on the international history of the Second World War Please now welcome tonight's speaker, Lawrence Rees. Thank, thank you very much for that way too generous introduction. Um, and thank you so much, uh, so many of you, for coming. I'm really, really um, grateful that so many people have, have turned out, especially 
given the series is over and the um, sales of the book fell off a cliff on December the 26th when the promotion came out. Um, so uh, you probably won't find it again until the paperback in the summer. But it's in my interest for you to buy the hardbacks now, so don't wait. Um, so I'm especially grateful, really, because I, I was giving a talk about a year ago at um, a very posh public school, and um, one of the questions that was, was asked at the end of it by this uh, sort of extremely um, intelligent, laid-back, privileged young man was, let's face it, isn't, isn't history pointless? <clears throat> well... What, could you elucidate a bit more about that? Um, he said, well, he said, it's all in the past, isn't it? And I said, that is absolutely, that's absolutely true. He said, well, um, well, what have you got to say to that? And I was about to say, well, what I'd like to do is to find your parents and tell them that all of the enormous amount of money that they have invested in your education has been completely wasted. <laughs> But I thought that won't go down very well. So I thought, and I thought, I remembered um, this series that I'd seen on Channel 4 that was terrific, which was a science series about the mind and the way the brain works and everything. And it, it, they featured this extraordinary man who had had the most terrible thing happen to him, which was that his, his brain, in terms of his intelligence levels and in terms of his ability to, to keep his personality and so on was exactly the same as it had always been. But some horrible illness had happened to him, which had meant that he'd lost the ability to remember anything more than 15 seconds into the past. So they had these incredibly poignant moving scenes with him and his family, <clears throat> particularly with his wife. So he'd wake up in the morning and not know where he was or who he was. And his wife would then reassure him who he was. This would take about five seconds. So he then had about 10 seconds of reassurance about where he was in his life, and then 15 seconds, and he'd go, where, who, what's happened, who are you? And this, this terrible cycle would go on and on and on. And by the end of the program, it was clear um, that his wife and his family, who loved him desperately, could no longer be with him anymore. They couldn't stand the torment of what they were going through. It was almost more upsetting to him not to know who he was in this environment. And so um, he, was, he actually ended up in this sort of, uh, um, in this home. And it was this nether world. It was as if he was dead and yet still alive. And of course, as I said to this young man, all he had lost was his history. That's the only thing that had gone. All the other bits of the brain were the same. But without a knowledge of where he came from and who he was, life was wholly without any meaning for him. And that's only the importance of history. Without our own personal history, we are worthless. There's nothing left. There is nothing there. And I think that, that the reason I start with that story is because that actually has some impact on why I wanted to make the uh, last series I did and the book I did about Stalin. And if you want to, to visualize exactly why I did, what you do is go down, not far from here, um, bottom of New Bond Street, just where it turns into Old Bond Street by Asprey the Crown Jewelers. What you'll see there, just opposite Asprey's, is this um, statue. And it's called the Allies. And it has, it's, it's life-size statues of Winston Churchill. Um, I have to say, our Winston Churchill looks more like Winston Churchill than the statue, okay? You know. uh, the Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt. 
And in between, there's a gap, and what happens is all the tourists sit down in between and get their photo taken with the two of them, and it's called the Allies, put there in, 19, in the 1990s. And what fascinated me about that statue was, of course, what's missing. What's in the gap? And what's missing, of course, is Joseph Stalin. And that's an example of the collective memory loss that must have gone on, or the collective decision not to place him there, that went on with whoever decided to put that statue there. And the reason, I'm guessing, but the reason that they decided to make a statue like that and call it the Allies was because the placing of Stalin there wouldn't just take up the space where all the tourists are going to sit. The placing of Stalin there actually would be tremendously inconvenient. And it's tremendously inconvenient because what it would remind people of or jog people's memories about or even inform them about who, they don't, who don't know much about it, what would happen is people would think, well, what were the consequences of our dealings with this person? And I think there's a collective memory loss in the popular consciousness, not in places like this, not in places of, of, of scholarship, but in the popular consciousness, there's a collective memory loss about that relationship. And the reason that the memory loss has happened is because there's a whole series of awkward questions that come once you start looking at what the relationship was with Joseph Stalin. And that was why I wanted to make the series. I made the series knowing that in advance that approximately half the number of people would watch it or be interested in it as I'd done on my previous work on the Nazis. And I knew that because we did audience research beforehand which told us that. It's very, very interesting in television. You can, what's called pre-search, you can actually ask through the BBC's uh, huge uh, audience research facilities. You can actually more or less predict, very, very often, you can have a very clear idea about who is going to, going to come to a programme before it even exists. If you actually go out with a synopsis and say, would you watch this type of programme? And what's really interesting, was really interesting to me, was to discover that the audience research predicted that half the people who were interested in Nazis in the Third Reich are interested in Stalin. And we did some more work on that to, to quiz these people as to say why were they less interested in Stalin. And they were less interested in Stalin uh, chiefly because they thought it was just horrible. That was the, 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 the questions that were coming back. Horrible, nasty, oh, it's uh, Asiatic, oh, um, nasty, horrible. And you think, well, hold on a minute, the, the, the Hitler and the Nazis were pretty horrible, weren't they? <laughs> but there was, as, as I think Michael Burley described, a kind of dark glamour to the Nazis. There was a sense of the Germans are kind of like us. Uh, there's a sense of what well, it all happened here in Europe. How could that happen? They're civil, you know, they're decent, honest people. How, how could it all go so wrong? That didn't transfer to Stalin in terms of the audience interest. And lo and behold, when the series went out, we had precisely half the audience as watched uh, the Auschwitz series. And one of the terrific things about working for the BBC, and I have to say, I speak in the past now, because I left the BBC yesterday um, uh, to have my own independent company, uh, and will try and sell my next project back to the BBC, so I hope you know, it won't make any difference, but that's... You know, but I can speak in the past about my relationship with it, being employed by the BBC. One of the fantastic things about the BBC is we all knew going into it, that audience research, but we thought it's really important to do it. And so we did it. Uh, 
the extent to which you can ever shift popular consciousness, I'm very, very doubtful about. I really am, because uh, we've got any number of examples of how actually it's almost impossible to shift myth in the popular consciousness about history. Uh, I spent a lot of time when I was editor of Time Watch trying to do this, and I remember we did a film, a, a terrific film by Paul Elston about the true story of the bridge and the River Kwai. And we revealed that Alec Guinness did not blow up the bridge and the River Kwai. In fact, the bridge and the River Kwai was never blown up. It's still there. Um, the Japanese look on it as a tremendous military <coughs> achievement to have built the bridge and the River Kwai. Um, they got very annoyed, some of these people, saying that British officers did not help them build it. We build it ourselves, thank you very much, and so on. There's a whole other history to that. It was quite a successful documentary for a documentary. And then I discovered the BBC every Christmas was showing the David Lean film on the bridge in the River Kwai. And before it, they were showing our film on BBC Two. Which, and our film on BBC Two got precisely a quarter of the audience as the BBC One showing a bridge on the River Kwai David Lean feature film. So it's very hard in the documentary world to shift popular consciousness when popular consciousness is coming to a large extent, I think, from uh, feature films, from dramas which is another interesting topic. So, we knew all that. We'll go ahead and do something on Stalin. And the first question to ask, I thought, was why um, is it an inconvenient history? To, what's, what's so bad about this bit of the history that's meant he's not sitting there in that statue? Well, a number of obvious things to say to start. First, he's a nightmare of a person. He's not like... Uh, 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 Franklin Roosevelt or Winston Churchill. He is not a cuddly personality. Uh, he's not a cuddly personality in a large number of ways. Um, for example, uh, I've met uh, over the years, over the last 20 years, quite a number of people who worked directly with Hitler. And that's been a fascinating experience to hear what it was like actually to be in meetings and to deal with Hitler. I've met far fewer people who actually dealt with Joseph Stalin. And one of the reasons for that was because he actually had a, a, a tendency to kill people who were in meetings with him. In a, in a way that Hitler didn't. It's very interesting. There's a, again a perception of Hitler rightly as this horrendous monster, absolutely. But within his core team, many of the people who joined up with him in the early 1920s, large number of them, were still with him in the, in the spring of 1945. He was loyal to people like Goering long after Goering was, was, was any use to him. Uh, he actually had an extraordinary sense of, of loyalty to those people in his core team uh, in a way that Stalin never, ever had. Stalin was resolutely suspicious. Uh, I remember interviewing um, the son of um, Mikoyan, who was one of the members of the Politburo, who grew up and had used to attend dinners with Stalin. And he was talking about the problem of dealing with Stalin. And he said, one of the huge problems of dealing with Stalin was that eye contact was a big problem. He said, if you, if you, we all knew that if you, uh, if you didn't look at him, then he would think you were being shifty, and he got very suspicious of him suspicious of you. But if you looked at him and kept too much eye contact, he'd think you were somehow overconfident and plotting. 
So they said, actually, the first challenge in any meeting with Stalin was measuring your length of eye contact. That was something you actually had to be very conscious of. Um, I got another insight into what it was like working directly with Stalin when I, I interviewed, uh, we interviewed a man called Nikolai Bybakov, who I, we put in the series, who's dead now, but was one of the very last, when I met him two, three years ago, one of the very last survivors of people who actually dealt with Stalin uh, um, on a pretty much day-to-day -day basis during the war. And he described meeting Stalin in the summer of 1942. He was called to the Kremlin because the Nazis had just launched Operation Blue, this massive sweep across the steps towards Stalingrad. And the Soviets were in, looked as if they were in terrible trouble. So Stalin called in Bybakov. And Bybakov said he was called in to see Stalin. Stalin said, sit down, call it, and come with Bybakov. And Stalin said to him, look, Hitler has said, if he reaches and gains the oil of the Caucasus, then he has won the war. So your task, Comrade Bybakov, is to go down to the Caucasus and prevent this. But know this. If you blow up the oil wells and Hitler, it doesn't look as if Hitler was going to really get them, we'll shoot you. But if you don't blow up the oil wells and he gets one drop of oil, we'll also shoot you. And so Bybakov said this, I realized, very difficult, tricky task, you know, judging whether to blow up the oil wells or not. And there then followed this extraordinary dialogue with Bybakov because I was saying, well, surely um, did you think this was a, a proper way of managing you? And he said, well, it was a very tough issue, you know, things had to be done, we really had to, you know, look very carefully about what was happening with the oil wells and so on. And um, I said, yes, but would you have done this job anyway, even if he hadn't threatened, if you didn't do it right, they'd shoot you? And he said, well, I thought that, you know, it, had, you know, it showed, uh, you know, he, he really cared about it, this is what was going on. And, and I got the impression that actually Bybakov felt it was kind of a, a badge of honor that Stalin had taken time from his busy schedule to threaten him personally. <laughs> and, and this was, a, it was an extraordinary insight because you, 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 this was the world that they were living in. And it was not our world. It was not the world of Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, and Winston Churchill. And so what happens, summer of 1941, when the Germans invade, the Soviet Union is suddenly the Soviets become an ally of ours. We had never really wanted them to be an ally in 1939. They had most certainly never wanted to be an ally of ours. So to say this was a forced marriage is a, is a terrible understatement. And something incredibly interesting happens in that marriage, which is that to start with, both Roosevelt and Churchill are completely aware of the kind of person they are dealing with and the nature of that regime. These are some of the most sophisticated politicians of the 20th century. They know exactly what they're getting into. And yet, within a year or two, they've changed, they appear to have changed their mind. What's going on? Why, is, first of all, do they genuinely change their mind about the nature of Stalin? And secondly, um, what, what were the causes of that? I'll give you one example. The, 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 the crux of all this, the focus of the whole series and the whole book that I chose to, to try and analyze a lot of these issues around was the fate of Poland. Uh, and that's because uh, if you're Polish, you have a completely different view about the Second World War to the one 
that I was taught at school and the one we hold. And a lot of that, that focuses on a large number of reasons. But one of the reasons, and I, again, I didn't think people, generally speaking, in the, in the popular consciousness of this country realize this, is that, I'm sure you all do, but I'll, for those who might not, I'll tell you, that the whole of Poland at the end of the Second World War uh, shifted west more than 100 miles. The Poland that we ended up with was not the Poland that we started with. And that was against the will of the Polish government in exile and, as far as we can see, against the will of the Poles. They were never given a chance to discuss the fact that their entire country would move in one of the greatest demographic shifts in the history of Europe. What's interesting is that Stalin, you see from the documents and, and, and uh, uh, talking to people, was incredibly consistent about what he wants. You see the power, actually, of consistency. If you start off a meeting saying, this is what I want. And you keep on at it for years. You know, people at least know where, you know, what you want. And, he, and, and, and the Foreign Office officials, remar officials remarked on this in December 1941, when Anthony Eden goes out to see him. And this is the first top-level contact between um, the British and the Russians. This is the British Foreign Secretary has gone out to the Kremlin to see Stalin. And Frank Roberts was there, and he said... You know, what we all thought was going to happen was the Germans are just near Moscow. They're only 50 to 75 miles away from Moscow. It looks like the Soviets might very, very, very easily lose this war. So we all thought we'll go in there and Stalin is going to say, we need more aid, this is the desperate military situation and so on. Not a bit of it. The first thing Stalin says in the meeting is let's be clear, when the war's over, I want to keep Eastern Poland. And this was the bit of Poland that he got as part of the deal with the Nazis in 1939. Because what the Nazis did with him in 1939 under the Nazi-Soviet pact was split Poland down the middle. The Eastern bit to Stalin, the Western bit to the Nazis. And Stalin says, let's be clear, end of the war, I'm keeping it. And the Foreign Office was shocked because they were going, well, haven't you got more pressing issues, you know? And, and, and Stalin was very, very, very sophisticated negotiator. And he recognized, I think, more than anything, the difference between things that were urgent and things that were important. And he saw it as urgent, we've got to deal with the Germans outside Moscow, but it wasn't actually the fundamentally important thing to him. And the fundamentally important thing to him was where the Soviet borders were going to be at the end of the war. And that's in December 41. So Eden duly reports this back to Churchill and said, you won't believe this. First thing, borders of Poland. And Churchill, in this memo in, in January 42, it's worth reading, it's at his most um, uh, Churchillian, at his most sort of moral righteousness. I mean, and it's... Because it's, Eden was wavering. Eden was saying, well, if we've got to do business with him, I mean, the Poles are awkward. I know we went to war over Poland, but... Oh, well. Not a bit... Churchill is... Let's be clear... It's a memo that says um, he gained this territory in shameful collusion with Hitler. Never will a government of mine be party to, you know, just extraordinary, powerful memo, which, you know, points to the fact that we're fighting a moral war, which, of course, is how the tabloid press still see that war. It's a moral conflict. And in a moral conflict, you don't go around rewarding people for bad behavior. So this is duly reported back to Stalin. He's not very happy about it, but that was the reality. Two years later, 
in Tehran in a late night, uh, uh, over late night drinks, Churchill suggests to Stalin he keep Eastern Poland. And Churchill suggests the whole of Poland moves west. Why does he do that? He does that because things have changed. He does that because the, the, both the British and Americans are astonished at how the Soviets have managed to force the Germans back from Stalingrad. They're astonished at how well they're, they're doing. And part of it is Churchill feels they should be rewarded for that. Another part of it is he feels there will never be peace in Poland if Stalin doesn't get a buffer bit of it. He doesn't actually get a bit that actually, you know, he feels secure in. The Poles are not happy about this. They're especially not happy because there are more than 100,000 Polish people fighting in the British army, many of them in, with the British army in Italy. And they win a huge victory, for example, at Monte Cassino. But almost all of the Poles fighting in that army come from the very bit of Poland that Churchill has just said Stalin can have. So for these guys who think they're fighting and dying to get their homes back, even if they win, they can never get their homes back because they're now Soviet citizens. And there's this weird situation you get if you ever get the chance to go to Monte Cassino, do, because it's the Polish cemetery there is one of the most moving places I've ever been up on the hill by the, the, the monastery. And when I was there um, filming, there were coachloads of Poles coming through. And you can see it's clearly for the Poles this extraordinary place of pilgrimage. And we'd be filming, and then about every hour, hour and a half, there'd be a coach come up, and, and these Poles would get out, and they would have a, um, their priest, and they would have a flag, Polish flag, and they would come down this extraordinary avenue of cypresses towards the graveyard, singing hymns, go into the Polish uh, cemetery. They'd have a service, very moving, wander around for a bit, go back on the coach. Hour later, another coach from Poland would turn up, same thing, uh, uh, flag, uh, um, singing, service out. And after one of these things, there was some uh, uh, teenagers wandering around looking at the gravestones and I could see them looking very puzzled at these gravestones of all the Polish soldiers and the, um, we went up to them and asked well what's, what's uh, your feelings about this and they said well it's very 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 moving crucial part of Polish heritage there's just one curious thing none of these Poles appear to have come from Poland because on their gravestones was where they were all born and virtually none of them have come from anywhere that's in Poland anymore. They all come, as far as these Poles were concerned, who were in their teens, all the Poles who were dead there come from the Ukraine or Belarus, which is where that bit of Poland now is and has been since the Second World War. And I thought that's one of the most perfect examples I've seen of, of the consequences of political decisions actually impacting on, on lives and seeing exactly how people react to that. So that, that was a very real choice that Churchill made as to the future and, and what, ought, what ought to be done. And it was a compromise. Uh, it was something he realized 
that was a compromise. It was something he had a series of incredibly unpleasant meetings with General Anders, the commander of the Polish Second Corps, who was confronting him during the war with, when he heard about this with the reality that um, he'd just given away their homeland, what they thought they were fighting for. And he was saying, I thought the British went to war to protect Poland. And Churchill was kind of forced to say, <clears throat> well, we're going to protect Poland, just not necessarily the Poland that you started with. Which is what happened. And it, 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 ultimately, it didn't work. The strategy didn't work anyway, because what happened was the Poland that was left, Stalin never had free elections in, um, he imposed a police state in, and for a very, there's a very real sense in which the Poles there didn't regain any form of freedom until 1989 and um, the fall of the wall and the democratization of Poland. And I've met many Poles who said to me, well, it's all very well you celebrating the Second World War ending in 1945. I'll tell you, it ended for us in 1990. And a, there is a sense in which, in which that's absolutely true, I think. And you see also, I mean, the most interesting person in this, I think, <clears throat> To me, almost, the big surprise to me was Roosevelt. Because Churchill, one can always, though he vacillates between various decisions, you always get the sense with Churchill that um, you're understanding what he's doing and what he's going on. It's possible to understand it. Roosevelt, in all this, and this related to the Polish question, is much, much, much harder to understand what on earth is going on. And that's because... Unlike Churchill, uh, he never ever wrote his memoirs, he never uh, kept a diary, he never, crucially, he never confided in fully in any person in the world. I met people who worked for Roosevelt and said, um, you know, he would say, it's very important that I never let my left hand know what my right hand's doing. Uh, how he dealt with General Marshall, who was the head of the uh, uh, American army, he dealt with Marshall such that Marshall hadn't got a clue as to what he was, uh, um, Roosevelt was saying to the British or what he was planning. So Marshall had to make friends with um, the uh, uh, general who was in charge of the British mission in Washington. And he would go round there and say, can you show me the telegrams? And so that, so that because Marshall was never copied in. So Roosevelt would telegram uh, Churchill. And then Marshall, his head, the head of his army, would only find out about it by going to the head of the British mission in Moscow, in Washington, and getting copies of them when they went back. This went on all the time. He would work, you see how he worked his politics, was not through the State Department. He immensely distrusted the State Department. He worked it through a series of personal envoys, and he briefed them personally, often not in writing. So it's incredibly hard to know how he's actually working through it. There's a famous case when um, one of his envoys, Joseph Davis, turns up to see Stalin in the spring of 43, and the Admiral Stanley's the um, ambassador to Moscow, and no one's bothered to tell Stanley what the contents of this secret note that Davis is carrying from Roosevelt is. And Stanley hasn't even been told before they go in to see Stalin that Roosevelt doesn't want him in the room, uh, Roosevelt doesn't want Stanley, the ambassador, in the room with Stalin when his messenger's giving the uh, message. So there's this extraordinary awkward bit when uh, Joseph Davis said, actually, you know, you, you can push off, actually, now I'm going in to see. And he said, and, he, and, St and, and Stanley's going, I'm the US ambassador to Moscow. I said, well, yeah, he doesn't want you in there. And he said, well, you can't have a conversation with Stalin without letting me know what it is. I'm the US ambassador. Said, well, take it up somewhere else, I assume. 
So he's not allowed in. And this is typical of how Roosevelt's working. You see that with his discussion about the borders of Poland at Tehran. Churchill is honest. Churchill comes clean straight afterwards and says to the Poles, I'm afraid I've decided that you're never going to have a decent relationship with the Soviet Union unless your whole country moves. Roosevelt doesn't do that. Roosevelt, we know now, at Tehran, the Tehran Conference in November 1943, what he does is just before they're about to have the formal meeting that's going to be minuted about this, he calls Stalin to one side and says, and there's two of his advisors there, which is the only reason, because they wrote their memoirs, the only, only reason we know this, really. He calls his advisors to one side, uh, to Stalin to one side, and says, look, <clears throat> we're about to discuss the borders of Poland. You should know, and I'm paraphrasing, you should know, I can't go along with the whole of Poland moving like this. And the reason I can't go along with it is because I may very well stand for re-election in 1944, and there are seven million Polish voters, and they vote on bloc. So I can't be seen to say, Poland can move. But I'll tell you privately, completely support you. So they go into the meeting, and, 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 and Stalin all brought up, and Roosevelt said, well, no, let's see how it goes. You've got to be careful about this. And then what happens is the Polish prime minister in exile visits Roosevelt in the summer of 1944. And he has this extraordinary meeting with Roosevelt, because the Polish prime minister in exile is now terrified that the whole of his country is going to move, doesn't know what's going to happen. And he sees Roosevelt, and he says, is this true? And Roosevelt from the records we have of that meeting, is almost at his most skittish in that meeting. And he, he was often like this, apparently. I met other people who said, the thing about Roosevelt was, it was very, if he didn't want to see you, it was very hard to get into his diary, of course, but he might recognise that he had to see you for political reasons. So if he recognised he had to see you for political reasons, what he would do as soon as you came in the door was start telling you funny anecdotes to take up the time of the meeting and he'd keep it up for half an hour, and then his secretary would come in saying, I'm sorry, it's, oh, it hasn't time flown. So you wouldn't actually get a chance to raise anything. But he could say he took the meeting. And this was, a this was apparently one of his techniques. And so you actually, you actually see that, the, so he's trying, it seems to me, this with the Polish prime minister in exile when he comes along in the summer of 1944. He opens up the meeting by saying, I've been having a very interesting morning. I've been looking at maps of Poland. He said, I had no idea all your borders have moved so much 200 years. Hard to know where Poland is, isn't it? And the Polish Prime Minister exile goes, something like, well, I'm sorry, I don't quite see the relevance. So he said, oh, nothing. I'm just, you know, making talk. You know, it's very interesting about the borders of Poland. And um, Prime Minister says, well, but you don't, you don't believe we should move Poland, do you? And Roosevelt said, well, I'm on the fence on this. Um, Churchill and Stalin do, but I'm, you know, I'm careful. Not on the fence. Then what happens is the Polish Prime Minister in exile in October is taken to Moscow because Churchill is still trying to sort this out. There's a browbeating meeting when Churchill is haranguing him, saying, you, need, you must accept this or you're finished forever, is one of the things he says to him. And this, this chap then, in desperation with Molotov, Stalin and Churchill, says, it's all very well, but Roosevelt doesn't support this. I know he doesn't support it. And Molotov who, you know, is, is a very straight, again, extremely straight-talking person, clearly loses his temper. He's had enough of all this. And he goes, oh, come on, we privately agreed it with Roosevelt last November. 
And it's one of the very few times, because you see official minutes of these meetings, and they're very often very cold, much colder than the reality of them. But these minutes aren't cold. There's this terrible pause. And this, the, the, the Prime Minister turns to Churchill and says, that's not true, is it? Churchill says something like, well, many things were decided. Uh, and it's clear it is. And this guy is absolutely devastated. He cannot believe he's been lied to. He goes back, he writes to Roosevelt and says, this extraordinary thing happened to me. And this happened. Roosevelt delays replying until after the election in November 1944, when he's been re-elected. And the day after he's been re-elected, he replies saying, well, uh, we're, we're in favor of everybody reaching agreements. I wouldn't go so far as to say any of it, really. This extraordinary sort of nothing. And the day after, the Polish um, Prime Minister in exile resigns. He's had enough. That's how Roosevelt's, that's how Roosevelt's working. Extraordinarily uh, adept, either an extremely sneaky person or a deeply sophisticated, brilliant politician, as another academic has described him to me. <laughs> Take your choice. But that's how he's working. So that's how, uh, that's a, it's a, these are stories which don't help us um, uh, uh, picture the cosy relationship that's on that bench in New Bond Street. I'll end by just talking a tiny bit about how the Russians see us. Because for people who are interested in the origins of the Cold War, I've got a theory about this that pretty much nobody else agrees with, so I'll try it on you. Um, which is, you know, there's all this debate, when did the Cold War actually start? Well, I think that Roosevelt initiates an awful lot of this by these kind of politics and in how he's dealing with Stalin. Because if you look at how the Poles see us and feel in many ways, many Poles feel betrayed by what happened during the war, it's nothing to how an awful lot of Russians see us because uh, when you go and you talk to many people in Russia, they have a sense of deep betrayal too about the West. And their betrayal essentially focuses on the date of D-Day. And that is that what's going on is that what Stalin is looking for, and Stalin wants, is D-Day as early as possible. They have horrendous problems militarily against the Germans, so they want D-Day as early as possible to draw off German troops to the West. And at one of their most desperate moments in May 1942, Molotov visits Washington. This is an incredible moment, if you think about it, what's going to happen in the Cold War. This is Molotov, who an absolute revolutionary Bolshevik, visiting the White House. In fact, it's symbolized by an extraordinary moment when the White House valets unpack Molotov's suitcase. And what they find in amongst his rather threadbare clothes is um, a, a, a number of dried sausages and a revolver, a loaded revolver. And Eleanor Roosevelt wrote memorably, um, uh, the, uh, the, the Secret Service decided that um, Mr. Molotov uh, might, thinks he might need to protect himself and also might feel hungry. <laughs> but of course, if you're a revolutionary, what are you going to have in your suitcase? You're going to have sausages and a revolver. That's what you have. <laughs> so he's there in Washington, and he meets Roosevelt, and he makes this impassioned plea for military help. Please, we may lose the war this year. Launch what they called the Second Front. Launch D-Day now. And Roosevelt, and it depends, there's different Russian minutes, there's different American minutes on this. Roosevelt 
says something along the lines that it may very well be possible, or we hope, or it will happen in this autumn in 1942. They're then about to release the communique on this, and General Marshall sees it and sees the reference to our, inte- our, our, our um, I can't remember the exact wording, it's along the lines of um, uh, uh, our commitment to a second front in 1942. And he says, through Hopkins, Roosevelt's, one of Roosevelt's shadowy advisors, he says, that's a commitment. That looks to me, that was read like a commitment to launch the, second, the D-Day in 1942, and I don't think we can commit to that. The British are very careful. Church was very careful to say we're not committing to it. And Roosevelt says the immortal words, leave it in. And the communique goes off like that in May. I think that's the embryo moment of the Cold War. Because what happens goes back to Stalin, who reads it with immense relief. And for Stalin, Stalin famously says to the Polish Prime Minister in exile when, at the time of the Warsaw Uprising, and the Polish Prime Minister in exile says, please, a few words of hope to our noble fighters in Warsaw. And Stalin says, words are worth nothing compared to action. And that's what he always felt. He always felt everyone talks, talks, talks. What's important? What are you doing? What are you doing? And he gets this note back, autumn of 1942, D-Day, and it's great. Churchill sees that, knows the problems. Within six weeks, they know they can't do it. Churchill then goes to Moscow in August 1942. It's the basis of a series of one of the meetings absolutely horrific with Stalin, at which Churchill basically says, we can't do it, we can't deliver it. And Churchill says to him, it will be a waste of time doing it in autumn 1942 because we are preparing for a very great cross-channel invasion, spring 1943. Spring 1943. So Stalin goes, well, okay. Gets to the end of the year. Stalin says, can you let me know your plans for spring 1943, D-Day? And Churchill's forced to write back, sorry, it's autumn, autumn 43, terrible problems here, autumn 43. Stalin goes crazy again. May 1943, Churchill's in uh, Washington, and I met the guy, one of the guys who was in the meeting at which they were all going, we're going to have to tell him it's not autumn 43. And they're actually... And they were actually going backwards and forwards. Well, I'm not doing it. You do. And they're actually, no, no, I'm not. Gonna. And they're going, well, well, what can it say? What can we say? How can what can the note say? We've done. And and um, uh, this note goes backwards and forwards, trying to draft as to what do you say. And they come up with what I think is the sort of weakest political way of letting him know. Again, which is um, what they do is they send this enormously long briefing document about what's happening and hide it at the end. Going, uh, by the way, very great operation, Spring 44. Spring 44. Stalin, yet again, goes berserk. And so he feels this is totally cynical betrayal. And he believes that what's happening is what a a little known senator said. The senator from Missouri said in uh, June 1941, he's quoted in the New York Times as saying, when the Soviet Union was invaded by Germany, And he said, actually, you know, this can work to our advantage. What we should do is we should support in this war between the Germans and the Soviets whichever side appears to be losing. If the Germans are losing, we should support them against the Soviets. If the Soviets are losing, we should support them against the Germans. Bleed each other dry. Unfortunately, that that little-known senator was Harry Truman, who becomes president of the United States. 
and who, who, who then has to deal with Stalin at, at uh, Potsdam in the summer of 1945. And Stalin has a long memory for this kind of thing. One of his other favorite expressions, Stalin, was, I much prefer an open enemy than a false friend. And so Stalin believes this is what's going on. I also know that Stalin believes this is what's going on because we interviewed one of his uh, interpreters, uh, his specialist French interpreter, uh, who then became, I think, ambassador to Paris or Vienna at the afterwards. But this interpreter said he was interpreting directly between Stalin and a French delegation after the war, and Stalin said, in terms of the French delegation, he said, it's a joke for these British, the British and Americans who think that they're trying to sort of pull the wool over our eyes. I am aware completely as to what was going on during that period. And what was going on was they were trying to say, yes, 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 we'll have the second front, we'll have D-Day. And they kept putting it off and putting it off. So our, you know, we are suffering horrendous casualties. They do it at the last minute only when it looks like we might get France. That's the only reason that D-Day ever happened. That's what he believes. Well. I think there are many people in positions of enormous power in Russia who kind of believe this today. They look at the relative casualty figures. They look at the fact that the British lost around 400,000 people in the Second World War, the Americans lost about the same 400,000 people, soldiers and civilians, and the Soviet Union lost 27 million. So imagine if you're a Russian tourist going down New Bond Street and you, you lost 27 million people, a demographic calamity of your country, like the Black Death in this country in the 14th century, from which they have not recovered demographically. 27 million. And you're walking down New Bond Street and you see a statue called the Allies. Not just the Western Allies, the Allies. And it's Winston Churchill and uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Well, what does that make you feel about how people perceive history and what relatively you perceive Russia and the Soviet Union? And so I think that without understanding that history, more than almost any other history, you can't begin to, begin to penetrate Russian psyche as to what's happening now and what will happen. You also, incidentally, can't begin to understand the whole Ukrainian crisis uh, without understanding this history. Because the Ukraine that exists now was absolutely not the Ukraine they started the war with, just like Poland wasn't. The Ukraine that exists now has large chunks of Western Poland, which, which and I've been in huge correspondence with Ukrainians about this, you know, the extent to which that was historically Ukraine or not. But it, it started off the war as Poland. Um, but that bit of Poland, Western Ukraine, that bit of Ukraine, Western Ukraine, is very different demographically from Eastern Ukraine now. Eastern Ukraine has very, very large numbers of ethnic Russians, and Western Ukraine doesn't. So you've got a huge potential conflict in the Ukraine between two chunks. And a whole load of this stuff that's going on with pipelines and everything relates to very, very, I believe, very, very, very strong Russian nationalist sentiment about brother Russians. You know, the reason they gave in September 1939 for invading Poland was protection of ethnic brother Russians. Well, they believe, a lot of people in Russia believe that there are a lot of ethnic brother Russians in the east of Ukraine. And when you look at the demographics of how the Ukraine votes, the east votes one way and the west votes another. Again, I don't believe people in this country fully, you know, so far as anybody knows much about geography in this country, know this. And it's a legacy of all of this. It's a legacy of the fact that they got that for the Soviet Union and certainly Stalin never anticipated and these lots never anticipated that one day it would be an independent country. And so for all of those reasons, uh, 
that's why I believe that it was, it was worthwhile to try and make this program and try and write the book and try and explain this. Um, uh, and that's why I did it. So thank you very much indeed for listening. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Lawrence Reese is very kindly to uh, agree to stay and answer questions for a while, so you could be thinking about that. Can I start the ball rolling, perhaps, by saying that, well, if the Russians or Stalin and his friends thought we were rather cynical about the Second Front, then truly, of course, there's a great case of being cynical about him. He, after all, uh, had um, sent ammunition and uh, war stores to Hitler. Uh, which was used to invade France. And the, so, but I mean, none of this That's is it. actually what happened, surely. I mean, the Second Front was delayed for perfectly reasonable reasons. I mean, this is all just uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc. I mean, it's well, rationalizations and, uh, from behind. Well. That's, that's, as another dear friend an academic, uh, whenever I say something bonkers goes, well, that's a view. <laughs> um, that is certainly a view. Um, my view on that is that may very well be so. I mean, John Grigg wrote a book called 1943, The Victory That Never Was, which is all about, he wrote a whole book trying to analyze whether it would have been possible to have D-Day 1943. And I know some people, a lot of people who absolutely think it's a load of old nonsense and he couldn't, and I know a lot of people, some people, fewer people, who genuinely believe it could. The trouble is once you get into counterfactual history, who knows? So I'm kind of, I'm kind of agnostic about whether I'm not as certain as that, but equally I'm not certain you could. I'm agnostic. I don't know whether you could or you couldn't. What I do know is what they said to him. And the question is, if, as you say, it was so difficult for proper reasons ever to launch D-Day then, why tell him you're going to? That's the mistake. The mistake is not it happening in December 40. The mistake with Stalin is telling the guy something and then never doing it and then constantly not doing it. That's the error, as I see it. It's not a fear that if they don't give him some hope of a second front, he might have a separate peace with Hitler. Yep, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Again, I think, counterfactually, there's no way that's ever going to happen. But easy for me to say, because I'm not terrified it would. Um, and, and actually, once you look at what's Roosevelt's motivation for doing this, you think Roosevelt's motivation for doing this is thinking, Jesus, if I don't give him some false hope, the guy may give up. So, in the, in the famous old words of politicians, let's string him along. And I think they did. I think they decided, string him along, we'll sort it out later. Well, we're still sorting it out later. Okay, audience, so gentlemen, the blue, and then the gentleman in front of them. Uh, you talked before about how uh, the different levels of, uh, of interest in Nazi Germany compared to Stalinist Russia, um, and you suggested that was because uh, people could not, not relate to, to the Germans more, but certainly see them as a, a Western civilized nation. Um, I just wondered if what you thought of the argument that uh, part of the reason is that the, the Holocaust is seen as uniquely horrific. Um, and if you read uh, Anna, Anna Applebaum's introduction to her book on the Gulag, um, she talks about how you know the history of the Gulag, as horrific as it is, hasn't reached the uh, Popular, popular consciousness, and I just wondered if you thought, you know, if that could be a reason, or if it indeed links into what you were saying, in that uh, the Holocaust is more horrific because it's perpetrated by a so-called civilized Western nation. 
Yeah, I agree with an awful lot of that. I think I, I know that introduction. I agree with almost everything everything she says. Um, and having having written a, a book on Auschwitz and made a series on Auschwitz, um, I'm abs I mean, you know, I am of the view that what you're dealing with there is conceptually different uh, than what you're dealing with with Stalin. Uh, it's conceptually different. But also, there's another reason I think, and this is a reason that that that. I hadn't thought about it and I haven't seen articulated, but I only it came to me as a, as, a, as a filmmaker doing this series. And if I'm absolutely honest, wow, radical, I can say it now, I'm not on the BBC. If I'm absolutely honest, I myself didn't find making this quite as interesting as making the Auschwitz series or making the Nazi series. Why was that? Well, I don't think it was because I was racist about um, the nature of the style and so on. I think it was because actually what I discovered in going through all this was that essentially all of the people in, in the book I've just written, in the series I've just written, were essentially reactive people. They're reacting to something somebody else is doing. And that somebody else is Adolf Hitler. And actually... I don't know if it's just as a, as a reader or anything, but you, I tend to think proactivity and proactive people are a tiny bit more interesting than reactive and reactive people. And the more you read about, which is why I'm afraid to say 2011, my next book, I'm going back to Nazis. I admit it. Um, it it's because when you actually read how they're all trying to, basically they're spending almost all this time until the end trying to second guess what this other guy's going to do. And that's not as interesting as looking at what the other guy's doing. I mean, there's a lot of interesting evidence about this. For example, there's a really interesting evidence around Katyn that, that scholars in Russia are just working on now, which is, why is it that Stalin decides in the spring of 1940 to exterminate, to shoot, to murder more than 20,000 Polish officers. This is not his normal form. What he normally does, there have been mass shootings before, but nothing like on this scale, certainly nothing like mass shootings, killings of, of foreigners. What he does, his, his previous track record is, um, yes, he can, he, he, you know, the kulaks they killed and so on, yeah, but not like this. This is a different quantity. What the normal way forward is you ship them to the gulags where around a third of them die and you keep them there and so on. And that's, that's sort of normal practice. And the NKVD think that's what's going to happen as late as February 1940 to these Polish officers and other elite. But they don't. This extraordinary moment happens where he says they'll all kill him. Well, there's a lot of new research done on contacts in the autumn of 1939 between the NKVD and the Gestapo, exchanges of policy around what's happening in Poland, um, prisoner exchanges, and so on. Could, and there's a theory, and I don't know, there's not enough evidence to support it yet, there's a theory that contact with what, what, what was going on in Western Poland under the Nazis acted as a radicalization to Stalin. And maybe that's right, I don't know. But, but there's a sense in which um, even Stalin, Stalin in, the, in, in, in late 1941, spring of 41, is falling apart as a personality because of fear of what Hitler might do to him. Well, Stalin's a pretty tough guy. So there's something else. So, so I think that there's a, there's a, the, 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 it's a long answer, but I think there's something in there about difference in fascination to do with proactivity versus reactivity. 
And certainly I felt a bit of that. Okay, second question. <clears throat> yes, just a, a one or two comments. You mentioned the huge number of casualties suffered by the Russians. I think at the end of the war, 1945, of the, of the people in the Russian army in 1941, only about four or five percent of them were still standing in 1945. Yeah. Um, what you say about Roosevelt was quite eye-opening. And he seems to have you know, had very dysfunctional relationships and been an incredibly devious man. And um, on D-Day, what I've, you know, the little I've read about D-Day, it seemed, appeared to me an incredible achievement for the Allies. That, you know, the, the planning, the, the, the Mulberry Harbors, and getting everything together by Bertram Ramsey, it was an incredible operation, you know. And Eisenhower was under no illusions. It could have gone wrong. If the weather had turned, or this or the, that or the other, if, you know, if there'd been more resistance. Yeah. So the Allies were under no illusions about what could happen. Yeah. And they didn't kid themselves. And wouldn't it have been almost certain that if it had been tried in 42 or 43, it, you know, it probably would have been a complete disaster. Um, John Griggs' argument is that the whole, um, the whole thing was skewed by Churchill's decision to invade Italy, which turned out, turned out to be disastrous, I think. Um, uh, they had horrendous problems in going north. They didn't tie down the, the number of troops they thought they would. And if none of that had happened, who knows? But again, it's counterfactual. You can't know. But as I say, my point originally was if, if we knew that, it, it turned out to be, a, mm. I think, a terrible mistake to, to, yes. to mislead us about when it was going to be. If you read Alan Brooks' diaries, yeah. you come across his, you know, he was tearing his hair out. He was. With Churchill's, you know, harebrained schemes. And Church, didn't Churchill believe, you know, D-Day was on, you could defeat the Germans without resorting to G-Day? Yes, he did. He did. He, he, he always seemed to think that there was a, 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 an unconventional way of doing things. You didn't attack it directly. Yeah. Just as Bomber Hamas thought D-Day was a waste of time and uh, if you gave him enough bombers, the Germans would surrender, which was a yeah. complete fantasy. You know. And that Alan Brooke himself thinks that uh, you know, the Mediterranean option was the right way to win the war. Yeah. But it, wasn't that a, a delusion in the end? Um, I think that, that, that it's a sideshow, myself, it's, you can't say it's a sideshow because people died, you know, um, but in terms of what was actually going on in the real theatre of the war, it turned out to be that. Um, and I think that, that what Churchill was absolutely aware of was he, he feared a terrible like the Dunkirk. I think he, he said in 42 that they're better, you know, the worst of the effect the German soldiers are better than we are. Uh, and it, one of the most extraordinary, again, statistics is the Germans didn't lose anything like 27 million. I mean, you know, uh, five times as many Red Army soldiers are dying for every German soldier that dies. And, you know, the, 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 that German army, I mean, people talk about the Romans, but if, if you were, I don't, I'm not a military historian, but if you, were, if you were, I talked to a few military historians, and if you were going to point to the single most brilliant, effective army in the history of the world, you know, the top, one of the top three is the German army in the Second World War. Uh, and Churchill knew this, and we don't want to get involved particularly necessarily, I think, is part of it. And I think as long as they're dying in the East and they're being bled dry in the East, why hurry? 
I think that's what's partly in his mind. You're guessing because he never writes this stuff down, surprisingly. But, but, but um, I think that's an element of it. You know, and I talk to historians, some very eminent historians about this, who when I say, isn't it extraordinary, he does this, and they all die, and they, and, he go, and they go, brilliant, brilliant handling, fantastic politics. In fact, the most liberal do that. It's like kind of, it's sort of strange about being, but some of the most liberal historians I know go, oh, yes, I, I admire Roosevelt so much, sneaky, devious, you know. One of them said, I'd love what is a head of history at a, 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 a rather leading, a leading university said, oh, I'd try to run my meetings that way if I could, you know. It's just, <laughs> Keep talking until they stop. And then, <laughs> so, so there's different views about whether Roosevelt, you know, Roosevelt. All right, so gentlemen back there. The one behind you. Um, I was wondering if, now that the negotiations, or so-called negotiations between the Soviets and the Nazis about division of the world, the British Empire and so on, um, that they're having, I was wondering whether if Hitler never invaded the Soviet Union, whether it would have been, that would have come about, whether Stalin and Hitler were serious enough to divide the world up, to divide the British Empire up, and to sort of, um, whether they would have done this, and secondly, do you think the British knew, or, or how much did they know about these negotiations? Because I understand they knew enough to send an aeroplane over right. to uh, right. bomb Berlin, and, uh, right. but I don't know how much they, they did know. Um, I, I think that um, on, on the first point, I think, you know, absolutely, we know from the negotiations between Molotov and Ribbentrop in November 1940 in Berlin that Ribbentrop is trying to sell Molotov on this completely harebrained scheme that they should forget Eastern Europe and invade India, you know, to get a warm water port in India, you know. Um, and I think myself, by that stage, it's just baloney. I think that actually, um, that, you know, Hitler's playing along with him, trying to just keep him, you know, keep them away from what's going on in Eastern Europe because by that time Hitler has briefed his army that he wants to invade or he's intending at least on plans to invade um, and I think that I mean one of the many 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 fascinating things about Hitler is is that he does seem to have I mean he does have coherent views coherent vision he does have but the trouble is he's got a coherent long-term vision and he's got a coherent short-term vision but there's this stupendous gulf between the two that he can never bridge. So he's got this stupendous long-term vision, which is clear, the elimination of Bolshevism. So he sees that the whole of world history is about the elimination of Bolshevism. So a notion of, a, of somehow settling down into a, a comfortable alliance with this guy is never going to happen. In the long term, that's the, the purpose of his life, is to eliminate Bolshevism. And yet, he's trapped. He's got himself trapped by his politics into this short-term vision, which is he's my mate. So he's like got this, this gap here that he's constantly trying to, to bridge. And that meeting is one of the moments when they're trying to bridge it. Because Molotov is having a meeting with Hitler, and Molotov has a list of six... Pra it's, a it's a fascinating meeting, because it, it's exactly the difference between this sort of appalling, uh, uh, evil visionary and this incredible practice, practical man. So Molotov has, Molotov's been sent by Stalin with a list of eight questions, like, why are your troops in Bulgaria? What is your intention with Finland, right? And he's meeting Hitler with this. And Hitler's going, let me talk a little bit about big vision stuff. I see the world. And Molotov's going, <clears throat> Bulgaria. Can I talk a little bit about troops in Bulgaria? And, and Hitler is just losing it with this guy, going, you know, bigger picture, bigger picture. And you see at one point, uh, Pavlov, the, the Russian interpreter in the note, says something like, this meeting is increasingly pointless. <laughs> 
So I think that, that that's the issue between them. That actually, no, I don't think that a, a, an accommodation was, was you know, and I, th I do think that Stalin would have come 42, 43. I think most historians think Stalin would have turned on him if, you know. See, Stalin's, Stalin's policy makes practical sense, deeply practical person, which is we'll keep friendly with the Nazis, stay neutral, and then the First World War repeats. They invade France, bog down outside Paris, bleed each other dry, we're in good shape. Which is why the transcripts or the, the, the meeting that in the Kremlin that happens when he's listening to the radio and he hears that, that Paris has fallen is just hysterical because he's just going, you know, and he turns to, to, to Khrushchev and goes, couldn't the French have put up a fight? I mean, <laughs> he's just, just, the whole thing collapses into a black hole his whole policy when that happened. Sorry, questions? To a gentleman over there. Yes, the... Yes, yes. I understand that the cause of both world wars was pure, greedy land hunger on the side of the Germany. What do you think, sir? Um, I think that's a very large element of it. It's a very large element of it, but um, I think that a greater element is just is ideological. Is is that um, I mean, what's so fascinating is that is that you see we were talking earlier about Churchill and his view that you could you could bomb Germany into submission, and that's because he's looking back at what happened at the end of the First World War, and what happened at the end of the First World War, as you know, is that that Germany surrendered with its troops still outside its boundaries. And that was because of many reasons, but not least a, a huge blockade so that people in Germany were starving and there were terrible illnesses and so on. And so Germany surrendered at the end of the First World War without it being necessary for a, a single Allied troop to enter Germany. And, and, Hitler, and uh, Churchill knows this, and, and somewhere or other he says something along the lines of the bombing is our blockade. The bombing it will do this. What's fascinating is that Hitler and his, and, his, and his leading team take exactly the other message from the First World War. And what's in their mind about the Second World War is, is, I think, to a very large extent, righting the wrongs of the First World War. And they're not just territorial, they're ideological. They're about um, uh, the whole notion of what the East is, about the whole notion of Bolshevism, about the whole idea that they are this kind of bulwark, as they see it, of civilization against Judeo-Bolshevism Slavs. There's this, and that's not, that's not ideological. He, he says, well, he's going through meetings, he's studying, Hitler is studying breeding statistics, as he calls it which is he's working out. Um, he's got economic units working out how quick the Slavs are breeding. You know, and he's saying things like they are a race of vermin who breed like vermin. And they've and they sort of like got projection plans about when there'll be too many of them. That's one of the reasons he wants them. It's horrendous stuff. But it's, it's interesting because it's, it's using modern technology. I mean, they're talking in economic terms um, that there are increasingly too many of these people. And of course, what happens is that one of the reasons that that war is unlike any other war in history of a war of annihilation is because they, they, they hate and loathe the Jews, they hate and loathe the Slavs, and they hate and loathe the Bolsheviks. So when these troops hit uh, um, places like um, uh, the Baltic states or, or the Ukraine or Belarusia, and, and they suddenly get introduced to an individual who is simultaneously a Jew, a Slav, and a Bolshevik. I mean, you know, it's, that's the basis of where I think the whole of the final solution is coming from. It's, 
well, you're it. You know, you're the person I've been warned. You're, you are it. And so that isn't about te territory necessarily, although that's a huge element of it. It's about wanting an empire, and of course. But it's about, he was very, very clever at stoking up fear. I mean, he would, make a, he would do brilliantly now. You know, the other. You know, we, are, we know who's behind it all. You know, in this economic crisis, you know what's going on? You know. <laughs> No, and, and, and letting people in a little secret, I know. They're not telling you. Do you want to know the truth? There's something in human beings that, like, you know, that's what he's about. So next question, please. I enjoyed your, your, your last series very much, but I thought uh, one thing you perhaps didn't bring out at all was that uh, Churchill made two, had two, two fatal flaws in the way he approached things. Uh, with regard to Roosevelt, uh, first of all, he he uh, assumed that uh, Britain and America had the same objectives, which was not the case. And secondly, he uh, grossly overestimated uh, Britain's uh, power, what Britain's power would be after the war, and he failed to realise that. Uh, uh, Roosevelt was much more interested in Stalin's views and, and, and in negotiating with Stalin than he was in having much regard to British views, uh, uh, particularly as he distrusted uh, British uh, intentions uh, as an imperial power. Mm. Have you any comments? Yeah, absolutely right. Not about the series not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but about the broad historical point, absolutely right. I mean... Um, it was one episode at Tehran, we tried to do that, showing um, uh, Roosevelt not supporting uh, Churchill when Stalin laid into him. But frankly, the book is much better than the series. I'm absolutely honest. Uh, the, the, the trouble was, this is so much analysis, and, and actually TV is not terrific analysis, I'm here to tell you. But, but you're absolutely right, those are two key issues. And, and, um, no, it, it, you know, and I think Churchill knew, Churchill knew that, Churchill knew... They, they, they tried to talk about India once, and there was some huge bust-up early on that they both resolved never to bring it up again, because they just, you know, and, and um, uh, it's absolutely plain that, you know, Roosevelt wants to meet Stalin on his own first time at Tehran, and significantly in that meeting he brings up India as a way of getting on with Stalin, going, oh, the British in India, oh, and he actually says to Stalin in that first meeting, um, what India needs is a solution very much like the Russian one. And Stalin goes, that would mean revolution. And Roosevelt goes, well, you yeah, know. Yeah. You know, he, he, he loathed and despised the British Empire, absolutely. And so you've, you know, there's bound to be that problem in the, in the relationship. So, gentlemen at the back. Hi, thanks. It's a very interesting talk. Um, you said a lot about um, the history of uh, Poland and, and the Polish people. Uh, and then about um, the West, sorry, R Russia and particularly Stalin perceiving uh, the West as having been dishonest and cynical about the Second Front. I was just wondering if you could perhaps comment on Stalin's own uh, dishonesty and cynicism when he, his army was outside the gates of Warsaw and asked the uh, Polish people to, to rise up against the Nazis in preparation for a Russian assault, uh, which never came. Yeah, absolutely. Although... When we looked at it, it wasn't quite as simple as that. I thought that's what had happened, but actually, they never actually formally called on the Poles to rise up. Um, there was sort of amb ambiguity about that. And what I hadn't fully realized about that was that, that actually the, the um, 
uh, home army and the Polish government in exile had no contact with the Russian military about what they were doing. And, that, and, and actually, I think what was going on was something a bit more complex, although there's an element, of course, of appalling duplicity in Stalin. But what's actually happening is these poor Poles are spotting that in Ju July, uh, the Red Army has reached places like uh, Lvov, where uh, what they've done is they've taken the city with the help of the Home Army, got in, and then arrested and disarmed the Home Army, the Polish Home Army, the underground. So it's clear to the Polish government in exile that this is a nightmare arm. The Red Army is not coming to liberate them. They're coming, they will disarm them, uh, and, and the only real power they have is, they, they, is the Home Army, the underground army. So they make a political gamble, which is we're going to have the rising anyway, because if we don't have this rising, then what's going to happen is the Red Army will come in and disarm us, and then they'll say we never did anything to fight back. So we'll show the world what we can do, and then the world will help. Well, they were half right. They showed the world what they could do, and the world didn't really help. At least certainly the Red Army didn't really help. Interesting enough, Anders, General Anders, who the more you, if you ever get a chance to read just one book on this, read Anders' um, uh, autobiography, because it is the most heart-rendering book, and you feel what an enormous, amazing, great man, great man. But General Anders of the Polish Second Corps, he was very clear at the time that this was a disastrous course of action to have this rising because we all know Stalin won't help us and our, and, and, and our people will die and Warsaw will be raised to the ground. And that's what happened. So I, I you know, whether that was right or wrong, I don't know, but it didn't work out, that's for sure. Okay, uh, next question. Um, just a comment and, and a question really uh, together on two different things. The first is a comment. Um, you mentioned in your talk that documentaries don't tend to change national myth histories. But of course, if we look at France, that's not the case. That did happen in the late 1960s with the sorrow and the pity. Yes, so it did. Yes, so it did. obviously, perhaps in, in a broader yep. context, they can change myth One histories quite row. dramatically. Yep. Um, the, and, and obviously, the ally that's also missing from your statue it would be the French. Charles de Gaulle would probably be quite yeah, offended Poles, by it, actually. too. The, po um, the Poles had a bigger army than the French. Oh, oh, no, that no, no, not that I'm. That doesn't, that, 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 that doesn't surprise me in the no. least. Um, but the, the, the question is basically more to do with the Eastern and, and Western Front disparity on casualties. What I was wondering is, how does this link to the legacy of the First World War? Because if we look in the, we in the West of Europe, there's a very strong interwar commemoration based on casualty loss of soldiers. Yep. This must never happen again. These kinds of losses are unsustainable. Yep. That kind of commemoration doesn't happen in Russia after the revolution. Um, there isn't that memory of, of, of the massive soldiers' yep. deaths in the First World War on, on the Eastern Front. Yep. Does that play into how Russia can sustain such high casualties in the Second World War? Um, and, and actually, how does Russia sustain this, this level of, of, of death of soldiers? Um, are the Bolsheviks in any, way, in any way concerned about the fact that their own revolution came out of mass discontent, discontent with the war situation? Um, and how does this legacy of the First World War play out? Um, I think two very, very good points. I mean, yes, I'm, you know, I'm far too hard on documentary makers. I'm far too hard, no, because some of, the most you know, some of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen that have changed my view have been documentaries. Um, uh, uh, that film certainly did that. But we've been making films about the Eastern Front and what went on in the Eastern Front and so on for 20 years, and Hollywood still makes uh, Saving Private Ryan. And I don't believe that one person in, in 100 in this country knows the figures of the casualties I've just said. Well, we keep making them, but one film doesn't seem to have done it. Um, so 
broadly, I think I'm right, although there are individual documentaries, absolutely, that one particularly. I think the film we did on the, in the Nazis, the early film, Chaos and Consent, about the Nazis not being complete, not being um, organized like you imagine, a number of people have said to me that changed how they think about the Nazis. So maybe, yeah, okay, around, around the edges, around the intelligentsia maybe, but not, you know, there's a worry I've got about the centrality of the whole thing, which is why, you know, someone's going to make a feature film on it. But um, not Valkyrie. But, um, but your broader point, I think, is, 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 is a very, very, very perceptive right one, which is that you cannot understand the Second World War unless you understand the First World War, um, because every, everybody involved in the Second World War is seeing it through the prism of the First World War. Uh, and I think even now, the reason that people have this sense of the Second World War is this good war uh, there's a number of reasons for that, but one of them is, is the relative uh, 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 number of casualties we lost in the Second World War, which is much, much lower in the First World War. And the perception of that, I think, amongst many people, is that we had good generals. Montgomery, brilliant, Hague, bad. Right? Um, that's the perception. Well, it isn't as simple as that, because the chief reason we had such horrendous casualties in the First World War is we're dealing with the German army head on in a way that we never did in the Second World War. The head-onness is the Eastern Front. So that, I think, massively impact. You know, if, supposing they'd launched the D-Day in 1943, well, you'd be looking at levels of losses that we lost in the First World War and the Second World War. And there'd be a lot more sense of, my God, the generals were terrible and disgraceful, which again is an argument, many historians tell me, uh, many people tell me as to how Churchill's a genius, because that's why you're all sitting there, we all think this, is because they delayed and didn't do it. They didn't have that level of loss. On the issue of, of were they worried about um, uh, 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 problems on the front line, well, Stalin was paranoid permanently about that kind of thing, which is why he had the dual control of political commissars, which he drops towards the end. And one of the reasons I think he drops it towards the end is not just that it's practically, it's not working practically, it's that actually I don't think that they ever really risked revolution amongst the army like they did in the First World War. And I think a large reason for that was because everybody knew in that army the nature of what the Nazis were doing. Uh, and just like one of the reasons, you asked this incredibly important question, why did the Nazis fight to the bitter end? Why? Many reasons, but absolutely headline big reason they fight to the end is because they're terrified of what happens when they stop fighting. They're terrified of what they've done coming back. You know, they, they sowed the wind and it's coming back. And so what are they going to do? You, you're not going to stop fighting these people. Your wife and children are behind you. So you're not going to stop. And um, similarly, with the Soviets, what are you going to do? Have a revolution. You're going you're gonna to leave, leave the land where your, wife, your, your relatives and everybody are to these people? It's clear they have a policy of extermination. They have got a policy of starvation. It's the policy in places like Kharkov, policy. And so, of course, one of the other great unanswered questions in the Second World War is what would have happened when they invade the Ukraine. Initially, huge numbers of Ukrainians support the Nazis. And I've met many of them who did. And then what happens? This one chap I met who um, worked as a translator for them and was, was thinking, this is terrific because we'll have a free independent Ukraine, free of all these horrible uh, Soviets. And he went to a meeting with his Nazi boss and, and, and said, listen, um, I'd like to study to be a doctor. And this guy said, uh, the Nazi said to him, um, 
there's been a bit of a misunderstanding. We need people like you to tend cows. And he, you know, he, he actually said, it is not necessary that you read. And this, this guy, a week later, ran off into the forest, joined the partisans. Well, it, I think the scenario that, that would have caused what you're talking about is if they had not looked on the Ukraine and Belarusia and the board, they'd not looked on it like that. But asking but Hitler not to look on it like that is asking Hitler not to be in the centrality of what Hitler was. He, it's inconceivable that he could do that. But I think that was the reason that that, uh, that didn't happen. Uh, so we have a lady here at the front and then a gentleman there, yes? Okay, so there was a microphone now. Can you come to... Oh, sorry, there's, uh, there's one person before you. He's, he's um, sorry, my question relates to... Um, whether you think the um, Western allies were too cautious by the, at the end of the war, once the war was already over, everything, the actual conflict had ended, um, whether they were too cautious vis-a-vis -vis Stalin. For example, when the, the Soviets said, we'll have free and fair elections in Poland, but then they didn't, and the allies, I get the impression the Western allies kind of basically said, oh, oh well, okay, sort of. When my view is that, um, the Western Allies were in a much better position in terms of, you know, their country, their country wasn't, you know, Britain, America weren't ravaged and destroyed, they hadn't lost as many casualties, they had, the, they had nuclear weapons which the Soviets didn't have at the time. Do you reckon they could have been more sort of aggressive, at least diplomatically, um, against the Soviets to get sort of, you know, maybe that would have avoided having an Iron Curtain drawn across Eastern Europe? I, I, <clears throat> I thought that exact same thing, that's exactly was my view uh, in the course of making it. And then I remember having a, a, a meeting with um, one of my consult academic consultants, Professor David Reynolds, who is kind of, if not the world expert on this, this sort of question, one of the top two or three. Um, and he sort of tut-tutted like I was, you know, had been rather promising undergraduate and frankly <clears throat> let myself down rather with that one. Um, on the basis that um, the, his view, which is now my view of course, uh, uh, which I, he convinced me completely about, um, is that it's clear Churchill felt uh, that. And then he put forward this plan in, in the spring of 1945, Operation Unthinkable, to see whether it was possible to invade the Soviet Union to get them to enforce things, to get them to do what they'd said they would do. And you see Alan Brooks' diary on this, and you see the minutes of this, and basically the army think it's a joke. What they're, I mean, they think, you know, it's, well, there's no way we can do this. Now, this is pre-atomic bomb, and my question to David was, you know, just like Churchill, if you again read Alan Brooks' diary, when Churchill discovers the bomb at Potsdam and it's worked, he knew, he's known about it, but he hasn't known it worked. He discovers the bomb works in the summer of 1945, uh, uh, at the conference in Potsdam in July and he is ecstatic and he's saying to Alan Brooke at last we can say we can say to them fulfill your obligations or Kiev goes, Moscow goes it's fantastic, at last something so why didn't that happen? well it didn't happen for practical reasons and theoretical reasons it didn't happen for practical reasons because they didn't have any more bombs so they had a big problem. They, 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 I think they had one more, didn't they? Or maybe not even one more after, after Nagasaki. So they don't have enough bombs, and they're trying to make them. But there's another bigger reason, um, which is that, that the, they're dealing with a political situation, which is the war's over, and they've just created, through this incredible false rosy propaganda, Uncle Joe, our noble ally, this wonderful world in which we're all coming together. 
And so they've also got a horrendous political problem to suddenly go, bad person, bad ally. Um, and also they've got a political problem, which is, you know, do we really think the Americans are going to go to war over elections in Poland in 45? How many, you know, they want the boys home. You know, uh, he's already there, it's Eastern Europe, he's not threatening anybody else. Um, uh, you know, so, so there's all that sort of stuff going on. Um, uh, and there's no appetite, there's absolutely zero appetite for it after this. And I think that you see that um, uh, uh, there's the, the simply, there simply isn't, a, there doesn't seem to be a desire to go through with it at all. Um, and for those reasons. So I think looking back now, you wonder, um, and we know what Stalin felt, because Stalin um, told Gromyko about this. Gromyko said um, later on, you know, we can have the Berlin crisis of 48, even though we don't have the atomic bomb, because Stalin realizes they're not going to use it. Also, as Alan Brook pointed out, they're all practical problems. What do you do? Supposing you've got six bombs, are you seriously going to take out Moscow, Kiev, uh, St. Petersburg? Well, I've been, I've been to the Soviet Union. There's an awful lot of it left. I mean, what are you going to do? You, they, and, and also, you kind of know enough about these guys to know they're not going to, they're going to be pretty annoyed. <laughs> so what do you, politically, is the nuclear, you know, something we face now is interesting about nuclear weapons. Politically, to what extent are they practical questions? I mean, worked in Japan, but... I don't know. So I think they were going through that and thinking, you know what, um, let's leave it. So could I just ask, the, the, we haven't got much time left, so, so I, what I propose to do is take a final sort of round of questions in one, and perhaps you can give very quick answers. Yep. So uh, if you can, there's a lady there, we haven't, the gentleman up there on the balcony, we've been ignoring the balcony, forgive me, yeah. Can we just have one quick question? Yes, a first? quick question. Is it true that the Russian National Archives are now closed to researchers and documentary makers? And what? if so, what effect will that, this have on um, your future so projects? Can we take a bunch of them first? Okay. Right. Thank you. Uh, gentleman up there. Yes, I've got a very quick question. Uh, and it's about what you partly touched on, uh, Stalin and the bomb. I'm interested to know whether Stalin had set up a very powerful network of espionage through which he used to steal nuclear secrets to manufacture the bomb. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Gentlemen there, quick, quick, quick. These are the very last questions. So. Um, you've uh, talked consistently about um, Roosevelt's deviousness, but given that Roosevelt was an extremely ill man for the last couple of years of the um, Second World War, and also linked to the, one of the previous questions, about the, um, we could have played much harder ball with, um, with Stalin. And what do you think the situation would have been if, say, Roosevelt had died in '44, and, and Harry Truman had been negotiating with um, Stalin rather than a very sick um, okay, Roosevelt? Okay, thank, thank you. Last, very last question here. Okay, do, do you really think that um, Churchill gave away the, the eastern part of Poland because? Stalin deserved it, he'd been a good boy, or do you think he was trying to keep him in, on side? Have you got all these? Yep. Okay, thanks very much for all your questions. Lawrence will now uh, attempt to reply to the, the last four, within the time uh, limit. Will it go? <laughs> I feel like I'm being punished for being too London before. Are the archives closed? Yes, bad thing. 
Stalin's... No. Um, yes, it's appalling. It's absolutely appalling. Um, when I first filmed there in 1990... When I first filmed this, when the war went down, in, uh, it was tremendous. You got this huge sense of democratisation, of openness, and so on. It's systematically been shutting. Uh, the material related to Katyn, which is some of the most precious historical material of the Second World War, that only came out because Gorbachev released it, was beginning to be shut as early as Yeltsin. And now the only way we could find out what was in that archive was to interview academics who took notes. It's shut. They'll never, it's never open again. So there was a brief period of about 18 months. So all you people going into archives in Eastern Europe, take some notes, because you, know, you don't know what's going to happen. It's false to think that things can only get one way. I mean, they, they opened it, and it's like this now. Um, and we were harassed by the police on our last trip. We were, you know, it's getting, it's not good in terms of people who, who you know, and summed up to me by the fact that Stalin was allowed to be voted n number three greatest Russian in the recent poll in, uh, on TV in Russia. Number three. He's not even Russian, but there you go. <laughs> um, so it is absolutely terrible. I think it's dreadful, and I don't know what can be done about it. Um, did Stalin have a network of nuclear spies? Absolutely he did, that were hugely advantageous to him. Fast, what's fascinating about that is we didn't have any. They had this huge network of spies who were giving information, Carl Fuchs amongst them, that enabled Beria to get the bomb up by 49. And I think without that, they wouldn't have been able to have it. So absolutely, he knew exactly what was going on there. Um, would, would it have made a difference if FDR hadn't been there? Or, um, well, initially I thought it would. I was of the view that you know, he was so clearly ill at Yalta, it made a big difference. Actually, when you go through what he's saying, I believe that what he was saying was completely consistent with his policy before, which was, we forget now, but he had two aims dealing with Stalin, above all others. Uh, one visionary, one practical. The visionary one, I need him on side with the UN. Not many people realize Franklin Roosevelt created the UN. He do, it came from a doodle. He created the whole thing. It's his idea. Um, uh, uh, he puts it through. He wants, he wants Stalin to be involved in the UN, uh, visionary. And secondly, practical. He wants Stalin, who is neutral against Japan, to come into the war against the Japanese in the summer of 1945. He, those are his two goals. You see at Yalta, he's completely consistent. Those are his two priorities. Where the boundary in Poland is, free elections, but, you know, you know. I'd really think he didn't go to war over Poland like we did. He went to war over Pearl Harbor. He's not bothered about this, I don't think, really. In his heart, in fact, he says to someone before Yalta, um, these, these territorial issues in, in, in Europe, they're so complicated. It is, I want to keep out of them except as regards Germany. And then him and Stalin agreed on Germany because, you know, Roosevelt at one point was saying, we think jokingly that he wanted the Germans castrated. He did not like Germans, you know, and, and by not Nazis, he means Germans. So there was coincidence between him and Stalin over, over hatred of Germany. So I actually don't believe it would have made a huge difference if, he'd, if, he'd, if, if Truman had been there necessarily. I don't think so. Um, I think that was, American policy was fairly consistent. Um, did Churchill give up Eastern Poland because he thought they deserved it? That's what he said, but you know, uh, it's what he said in his memo to, to um, what happened after the Tehran conference was <laughs> Churchill realized, I think, on the way back how miles apart what he'd just done at Tehran was from his memo two years ago. So, and I think he was a historian. He's sitting on this going, how am I going to square this when it comes to the chapter? So I think what he did was he, he writes in some huge memo to Eden that stuff Eden already knows 
going, I thought it might help if I just broadly outlined why my policy is changing at this precise moment. And, then, and he does this memo which goes, um, the Russians sought, and I paraphrase, A, the Russians deserve it, and B, they're changing. I see deep-seated changes in the nature of the Soviets, which some academics believe the were bits. I don't. I think it's baloney. I don't think he saw that particularly. But I think he's reading it into the record for his book. Is what I think is going on there. And actually, what's happening is that he's doing it as a ruthless, practical politician. Which is he's got to get on with Stalin. Stalin wins because of the power of his army and the consistency of his demands. You know, two things Stalin was aware of. You know, you've got this army behind you. You just keep saying what you want over and over and over and over and over again, and in the end, they'll give it to you. And I think that's what Churchill finally just thought. I'll never do business with him unless I give it to him. Okay, Lawrence, thank you very much for a brilliant performance. <laughs>